You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of Yahweh, and Yahweh listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore Yahweh gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained in Samaria. For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Joash, his son, reigned in his place. In the thirty-seventh year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. And he reigned sixteen years. He also did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Now when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash king of Israel went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, Yahweh's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, for you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck the ground three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria down until you had made an end of it. But now you shall strike 
Syria down only three times. So Elisha died, and they buried him. Now bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on its feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but Yahweh was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 809 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, January 31st, 2024, and that was a reading of 2 Kings chapter 13 and a rather morose end of Elisha's life, for one thing, which we'll talk about in just a minute. As a matter of fact, We'll be starting off our thoughts on the reading, our commentary on the reading, by referring to Matthew Henry's commentary on 2 Kings chapter 13. And besides that, we'll talk about some other things as well. Because I want to talk about everything, but then you can't necessarily talk about everything in every moment, because that's just a part of our finitude, right? You have to pick and choose. You have to talk about some things we'll talk about other things, and you'll know what they are as we get to them. But as I said, let's do comment on the passage. Let's get into Matthew Henry's commentary on the passage and see what he has to say about Second Kings chapter 13. He writes, This chapter brings us again to the history of the kings of Israel, and particularly of the family of Jehu. We have here an account of the reign of his son Jehoahaz, which continued 17 years, his bad character in general, verses 1 and 2, the trouble he was brought into, verse 3, and the low ebb of his affairs, verse 7, his humiliation before God and God's compassion towards him, verse 4 and 5, and also 23, his continuance in his idolatry, notwithstanding, verse 6, his death, verses 8 and 9, of his grandson Joash, which continued 16 years. Here is a general account of his reign in the usual form, verses 10 to 13, but a particular account of the death of Elisha in his time. One, the kind visit the king made him, verse 14, the encouragement he gave the king in his wars with Syria, verses 15 to 19. Two, his death and burial, verse 20, and a miracle wrought by his bones, verse 21. And lastly, 
the advantages Joash gained against the Syrians, according to his predictions, verses 24 and 25. Concerning verses 1 to 9, Matthew Henry has this to say, this general account of the reign of Jehoahaz and of the state of Israel during his 17 years, though short, is long enough to let us see two things which are very affecting and instructive. One, the glory of Israel raked up in the ashes, buried and lost, and turned into shame. How unlike does Israel appear here to what it had been and might have been? How is its crown profaned and its honor laid in the dust? It was the honor of Israel that they worshipped the only living and true God, who is a spirit, an eternal mind, and had rules by which to worship him of his own appointment. But by changing the glory of their incorruptible God into the similitude of an ox, the truth of God into a lie, they lost his honor and leveled themselves with the nations that worshipped the work of their own hands. We find here that the king followed the sins of Jeroboam, verse 2. And the people departed not from them, but walked therein, verse 6. There could not be a greater reproach than these two idolized calves were to a people that were instructed in the service of God and entrusted with the lively oracles. In all the history of the ten tribes, we never find the least shock given to that idolatry. But in every reign, still the calf was their God, and they separated themselves to that shame. It was the honor of Israel that they were taken under the special protection of heaven. God himself was their defense, the shield of their help, and the sword of their excellency. Happy wast thou, O Israel, upon this account. But here, as often before, we find them stripped of this glory and exposed to the insults of all their neighbors. They by their sins provoked God to anger, and then he delivered them into the hands of Hazael, and Ben-Hadad, verse 3. Hazael oppressed Israel, verse 22. Surely never was any nation so often plucked and pillaged by their neighbors as Israel was. This the people brought upon themselves by sin. When they had provoked God to pluck up their hedge, the goodness of their land did but tempt their neighbors to prey upon them. So low was Israel brought in this reign by the many deprivations which the Syrians made upon them, that the militia of the kingdom and all the force they could bring into the field were but fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand footmen, a despicable muster, verse 7. Have the thousands of Israel come to this? How has the gold become dim? The debauching of a nation will certainly be the debasing of it. Some sparks of Israel's ancient honor appearing in these ashes. It is not quite forgotten, notwithstanding all these quarrels, that this people is the Israel of God, and he is the God of Israel. For, one, it was the ancient honor of Israel that they were a praying people, and here we find somewhat of that honor revived. For Jehoahaz their king, in his distress, besought the Lord, verse 4, applied for help, not to the calves, what help could they give him, but to the Lord. It becomes kings to be beggars at God's door and the greatest of men to be humble petitioners at the footstool of his throne. Need will drive them to it. Two, it was the ancient honor of Israel that they had God nigh unto them in all 
that which they called upon him for, Deuteronomy 4.7. And so he was here. Though he might justly have rejected the prayer as an abomination to him, yet the Lord hearkened unto Jehoahaz and to his prayer for himself and for his people, verse 4, and he gave Israel a savior, verse 5. Not Jehoahaz himself for all his days, Hazael oppressed Israel, verse 22, but his son, to whom, in answer to his father's prayers, God gave success against the Syrians so that he recovered the cities which they had taken from his father, verse 25. This gracious answer God gave to the prayer of Jehoahaz, not for his sake or the sake of that unworthy people, but in remembrance of his covenant with Abraham, verse 23, which in such exigencies as these, he had long since promised to have respect to Leviticus 26, 42. See how swift God is to show mercy, how ready to hear prayers, how willing to find out a reason to be gracious, else he would not look so far back as that ancient covenant which Israel had so often broken and forfeited all the benefit of. Let this invite and engage us forever to him and encourage even those that have forsaken him to return and repent. For there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared. Concerning verses 10 to 19, Matthew Henry has this to say. We have here Jehoahash or Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, and grandson of Jehu, upon the throne of Israel. Probably the house of Jehu intended some respect to the house of David when they gave this heir apparent to the crown the same name with him that was then king of Judah. One, the general account here, given of him and his reign, is much the same with what we have already met with and has little in it remarkable, verses 10 to 13. He was none the worst, and yet, because he kept up that ancient and politic idolatry of the house of Jeroboam, it is said, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. That one evil was enough to leave an indelible mark of infamy upon his name, for how little evil soever men saw in it, it was in the sight of the Lord a very wicked thing. And we are sure that his judgment is according to the truth. It is observable how lightly the inspired penman passes over his acts and his might wherewith he warred, leaving it to the common historians to record them while he takes notice only of the respect he showed to Elisha. One good action shall make a better figure in God's book than twenty great ones, and in his account it gains a man a much better reputation to honor a prophet than to conquer a king and his army. Two, the particular account of what passed between him and Elisha has several things in it remarkable. One, Elisha fell sick, verse 14. Observe, he lived long, for it was now about 60 years since he was first called to be a prophet. It was a great mercy to Israel, and especially to the sons of the prophets, that he was continued so long a burning and shining light. Elijah finished his testimony in a fourth part of that time. God's prophets have their day set them, some longer, others shorter, as infinite wisdom sees fit. All the latter part of his time, from the anointing of Jehu, which was 45 years before Joash began his reign, we find no mention made of him, 
or of any thing he did, till we find him here, upon his deathbed. He might be useful to the last, and yet not so famous as he had sometimes been. The time of his flourishing was less than the time of his living. Let not old people complain of obscurity, but rather be well pleased with retirement. The spirit of Elijah rested on Elisha, and yet he was not sent for to heaven in a fiery chariot, as Elijah was, but went the common road out of the world and was visited with the visitation of all men. If God honors some above others, who yet are not inferior to them in gifts or graces, who shall find fault? May he not do what he will with his own. Two, King Joash visited him in his sickness and wept over him, verse 14. This was an evidence of some good in him, that he had a value and affection for a faithful prophet. So far was he from hating and persecuting him as a troubler of Israel, that he loved and honored him as one of the greatest blessings of his kingdom, and lamented the loss of him. There have been those who would not be obedient to the word of God, and yet have the faithful ministers of it so manifested in their consciences that they could not but have an honor for them. Observe here, when the king heard of Elisha's sickness, he came to visit him and to receive his dying counsel and blessing. And it was no disparagement to him, though a king, thus to honor one whom God honored. Note, it may turn much to our spiritual advantage to attend the sickbeds and deathbeds of good ministers and other good men that we may learn to die and may be encouraged in religion by the living comforts they have from it in a dying hour. Though Elisha was very old, had been a great while useful, and in the course of nature could not continue long, yet the king, when he saw him sick and likely to die, wept over him. The aged are most experienced and therefore can worst be spared in many causes, One old witness is worth ten young ones. He lamented him in the same words with which Elisha had himself lamented the removal of Elijah, my father, my father. It is probable he had heard or read them in that famous story. Note, those that give just honors to the generation that goes before them are often recompensed with the like from the generation that comes after them. He that watereth, that watereth with tears, shall be watered, shall be so watered, also himself when it comes to his own turn, Proverbs 11.25. The king was herein selfish. He lamented the loss of Elisha because he was as the chariot and horseman of Israel and therefore could be ill spared when Israel was so poor in chariots and horsemen as we find they were, verse 7, when they had in all but 50 horsemen and ten chariots. Those who consider how much good men contribute to the defense of a nation and the keeping off of God's judgments will see cause to lament the removal of them. Three, Elisha gave the king great assurances of his success against the Syrians, Israel's present oppressors, and encouraged him to prosecute the war against them with vigor. Elisha was aware that, therefore, he was loath 
to part with him because he looked upon him as the great bulwark of the kingdom against that common enemy and depended much upon his blessings and prayers and his designs against them. Well, says Elisha, if that be the cause of your grief, let not that trouble thee, for thou shalt be victorious over the Syrians when I am in my grave. I die, but God will surely visit you. He has the residue of the Spirit and can raise up other prophets to pray for you. God's grace is not tied to one hand. He can bury his workmen and yet carry on his work. To animate the king against the Syrians, he gives him a sign, orders him to take bow and arrows, verse 15, to intimate to him that in order to the deliverance of his kingdom from the Syrians, he must put himself into a military posture and resolve to undergo the perils and fatigues of war. God would be the agent, but he must be the instrument. And that he should be successful, he gives him a token by directing him. One, to shoot an arrow toward Syria, verses 16 and 17. The king, no doubt, knew how to manage a bow better than the prophet did. And yet, because the arrow now to be shot was to have its significancy from the divine institution, as if he were now to be disciplined, he received the words of command from the prophet. Put thy hand upon the bow, open the window, shoot. Nay, as if he had been a child that never drew a bow before, Elisha put his hands upon the king's hands to signify that in all his expeditions against the Syrians, he must look up to God for direction and strength, must reckon his own hands not sufficient for him, but go on in a dependence upon divine aid. He teaches my hands to war. Psalm 18, 34, 144, 1. The trembling hands of a dying prophet, as they signified the concurrence and communication of the power of God, gave this arrow more force than the hands of the king in his full strength. The Syrians had made themselves masters of the country that lay eastward, chapter 10, verse 33. Thitherward, therefore, the arrow was directed, and such an interpretation given by the prophet of the shooting of this arrow, though shot in one respect at random, as made it a commission to the king to attack the Syrians, notwithstanding their power and possession, a promise of success therein. It is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance even the arrow of deliverance from Syria. It is God that commands deliverance. And when he will effect it, who can hinder? The arrow of deliverance is his. He shoots out his arrows, and the work is done. Psalm eighteen fourteen. Thou shalt smite the Syrians in Aphek, where they are now encamped, or where they are to have a general rendezvous of their forces till thou have consumed those of them that are vexatious and oppressive to thee and thy kingdom. 2. To strike with the arrows. Verse 18 and 19. The prophet, having in God's name assured him of victory over the Syrians, he will now try him and see what improvement he will make of his victories, whether he will push them on with more zeal than Ahab did 
when Ben-Hadad lay at his mercy for the trial of this, he bids him smite with the arrows on the ground, believe them brought to the ground by the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, and laid at thy feet. And now show me what thou wilt do to them when thou hast them down, whether thou wilt do as David did when God gave him the necks of his enemies, beat them small as the dust before the wind. Psalm 18:40 and 42. The king showed not that eagerness and flame which one might have expected upon this occasion, but smote thrice and no more. Either out of foolish tenderness to the Syrians, he smote as if he were afraid of hurting them, at least of ruining them, willing to show mercy to those that never did, nor ever would show mercy to him or his people, or perhaps he smote thrice and very coldly because he thought it but a silly thing, that it looked idle and childish for a king to beat the floor with his arrows. And thrice was often enough for him to play the fool merely to please the prophet. But by contemning the sign, he lost the thing signified sorely to the grief of the dying prophet who was angry with him and told him he should have smitten five or six times. Not being straightened in the power and promise of God, why should he be straightened in his own expectations and endeavors? Note, it cannot be but a trouble to good men to see those they wish well to stand in their own light and forsake their own mercies, to see them lose their advantages against their spiritual enemies and to give them advantage. Concerning verses 20 to 25, Matthew Henry has this to say, we must here attend one, the sepulchre of Elisha. He died in a good old age and they buried him. And what follows shows what power there was in his life to keep off judgments. For as soon as he was dead, the bands of the Moabites invaded the land, not great armies to face them in the field, but roving, skulking bands that murdered and plundered by surprise. God has many ways to chastise a provoking people. The king was apprehensive of danger only from the Syrians, but behold, the Moabites invaded him. Trouble comes sometimes from that point whence we lust feared it. The mentioning of this immediately upon the death of Elisha intimates that the removal of God's faithful prophets is a presage of judgment's coming. When ambassadors are recalled, heralds may be expected. Two, what power there was in his dead body. It communicated life to another dead body. Verse 21. This great miracle, though briefly related, was a decided proof of his mission and a confirmation of all his prophecies. It was also a plain indication of another life after this. When Elisha died, there was not an end of him, for then he could not have done this. From operation, we may infer existence. By this, it appeared that the Lord was still the God of Elisha, Therefore, Elisha still lived, for God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And it may perhaps have a reference to Christ, by whose death and burial the grave is made to all believers a safe and happy passage to life. It likewise intimated 
that though Elisha was dead, yet in virtue of the promises made by him, Israel's interests, though they seemed quite sunk and lost, should revive and flourish again. The neighbors were carrying the dead body of a man to the grave and fearing to fall into the hands of the Moabites, a party of whom they saw at a distance near the place where the body was to be interred, they laid the corpse in the next convenient place, which proved to be Elisha's sepulcher. The dead man, upon touching Elisha's bones, revived, and it is likely went home again with his friends. Josephus relates the story otherwise, that some thieves, having robbed and murdered an honest traveler, threw his dead body into Elisha's grave, and it immediately revived. Elijah was honored in his departure. Elisha was honored after his departure. God thus dispenses honor as he pleases, but one way or other, the rest of all the saints will be glorious. Isaiah 11 verse 10. It is good being near the saints and having our lot with them, both in life and death. Two, the sword of Joash, king of Israel, and we find it successful against the Syrians. The cause of his success was God's favor. Verse 23, the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them in their miseries, and respect unto them. The several expressions here of the same import call upon us to observe and admire the triumphs of divine goodness in the deliverance of such a provoking people. It was of the Lord's mercies that they were not consumed because he would not destroy them as yet. He foresaw they would destroy themselves at last, but as yet he would reprieve them and give them space to repent. The slowness of God's processes against sinners must be construed to the honor of his mercy, not the impeachment of his justice. The effect of his success was Israel's benefit. He recovered out of the hands of Ben-Hadad the cities of Israel, which the Syrians were possessed of. Verse 25, this was a great kindness to the cities themselves, which were hereby brought from under the yoke of oppression, and to the whole kingdom, which was much strengthened by the reduction of those cities. Thrice Joash beat the Syrians, just as often as he had struck the ground with the arrows, and then a full stop was put to the course of his victories. Many have repented, when it was too late, of their distrusts and the straightness of their desires. And those are Matthew Henry's comments with regards to Second Kings chapter 13. Some sobering stuff. No two ways about it. Very sobering. But, as I said, we'll discuss more in this episode than just Second Kings chapter 13. I'm not done commenting on it myself. But I want to, before I say too much more about Second Kings 13, delve into a couple of resources that I came across that pertain to a project I've been working on here for around about the last year with others, in conjunction with others, but also trying to invite more to participate. And I want to present some counterfactuals or maybe some variations on 
how one might interpret certain features that I personally have taken a certain way, but maybe if others take these things a different way and they have a strong argument for why we should take these things the way that they do, we should consider rather than saying, oh, no, 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 it must be this. It must be what I think it is. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. If I'm the first to state my case and I don't permit a second to come and examine me, then that doesn't exactly instill confidence in at least myself that what it is that I'm speaking, what it is that I'm saying is what is the case. And I can't imagine it would instill confidence in you either. And so to the end of being open to being cross-examined, double-checked, questioned, contradicted, we'll start off with a piece, a blog post, it appears, an article, if you will, published at gotherefore.com by a certain Phil Colgan, who is an Anglican minister at St. George North Anglican Church for 10 years as of March 27th, 2017. You may be interested to know that St. George North Anglican Church, when I do a Google search for it, comes up in Australia. This is a church in Australia. This is an Anglican minister in Australia writing this in 2017, not in the United States, not in the year 2024, actually coming up on seven years ago. The title of his article is A Question Does Jeremiah 29 Call Us to Seek the Welfare of the City? There's apparently a longer article that was first published in Vine Journal number five. We're not going to read that one. We're going to read the one that came up while I was looking up again Jeremiah chapter 29. Here recently, it came up on the first page of Google search results. We're going to read that one in part because I think it's easier given that I've already found it, in part because if it's coming up on the first page of search results, it's probably also what most others have encountered. They probably haven't encountered so much of the longer article and also for the sake of time. The shorter offering is attractive for obvious reasons. But here's what Phil Colgan writes. If I was writing 20 years ago about how Christians should live in the world, the side of Christ's return, I don't think Jeremiah 29 would have been on the radar. Perhaps Jeremiah 29 11 might have got a mention. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, which has been on Christian posters with puppies and sunsets since time immemorial. However, it's funny how certain passages capture the Christian zeitgeist at a particular time for good or for ill. Right now, among Reformed evangelicals, it is Jeremiah 29's time. This is thanks largely to Tim Keller's very well-known and generally amazing work in New York and his appropriation of Jeremiah 29.7, Seek the Welfare of the City, as a mission statement for Christian engagement with the world. For many people, this verse or phrase has become key for understanding the role of the Christian and the church in the modern world, the key verse for what it means to live as exiles in a fallen world. I have to admit that I've always felt uncomfortable when I see Jeremiah 29.7 used in that way. 
Why? Because I am a child of Sydney evangelicalism, and that means I have been raised to understand the importance of biblical theology. Oh, well. I have to admit that I have always felt uncomfortable when I see Jeremiah 29.7 used in that way. He writes, why? Because he's been raised to understand the importance of biblical theology. All right. All right. Here we go. More college from the days of Knox and Robinson through to Graeme Goldsworthy is known for its focus on considering each part of the scriptures in the light of the whole and understanding each part through the lens of God's great plans in Christ for all of history, which is what I mean by biblical theology. So I am always uncomfortable when Old Testament verses are taken and applied directly to the New Covenant believer, especially when they are used as a slogan. With that in mind, in this article, I want to look at Jeremiah 29.7 on its own terms rather than as a mission statement. I want to see what it actually has to teach us and not teach us about living in exile. Now, we'll just pause right there. He is saying here that Jeremiah 29.7 has something to teach us, even if he is pushing back on the notion that it teaches us everything that some might purport, some might suggest, or as he believes, mistakenly suppose. He thinks highly of Tim Keller's work and maybe not necessarily quite as highly of the application of this passage, whether by Tim Keller or by those who have taken the ball and run with it. Back to Phil Colgan's piece here. Under the heading, Judgment, Hope, and False Prophets, he writes, The first thing we need to do is remember what Jeremiah as a whole is about. There are three dominant themes in Jeremiah. Firstly, more than anything, Jeremiah is about God's judgment on his people for their apostasy, for their false assurance, for their ungodliness. It is a judgment that took the form of exile. Secondly, Jeremiah is also about a future hope. It is a message that judgment and exile are not the end of the matter for God's people. The third dominant theme in the book is what I call the Battle of the Prophets, which is probably better thought of as the context for the first two themes. The book of Jeremiah maps out a constant battle between Jeremiah, who is bringing God's message to his people, and false prophets who want to contradict and undercut Jeremiah at every turn. All through the book, Jeremiah isn't speaking the word of God into a vacuum. There are always these other voices with their false messages at every point. Leading up to the exile itself, Jeremiah was primarily a prophet of doom to Jerusalem. In many ways, this pre-exile message is best summarized in chapters 15 and 16. In chapter 15, the message is about God's judgment for Judah's sin and apostasy. Some will die, some will starve, some will be exiled. However, the key thing is that God will be behind it all. The impending catastrophe and all its consequences are God's doing. Yet alongside this message of doom, there is also a prophecy of future hope. After the judgment, there will be salvation, and restoration. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it shall no longer be said, as Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers, Jeremiah 16, 14-15. 
Jeremiah is speaking of a new exodus out of exile and back to Jerusalem, which will make the first exodus seem hardly worth talking about. This promise is repeated in chapter 23, but this time with a Davidic or Messianic edge to the hope. So these two themes, judgment and restoration, run through Jeremiah's prophetic messages. However, nearly every prophecy Jeremiah shared is refuted and denied by his opponents. When Jeremiah says judgment is coming, his opponents say, don't be stupid. God won't judge his own people. When God says through Jeremiah, I'm finishing them all off by sword, famine, and plague, the false prophets say, you shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. Chapter 14, verse 13. These false assurances continue right through until the sword actually falls, the wave of exiles are taken off to Babylon, and Zedekiah is left on the throne in Jerusalem, effectively a puppet of Babylon. Now, by this point, you would think that the false prophets would have learnt their lesson, but no, they keep at it. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, if any nation or kingdom will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares Yahweh, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers, or your sorcerers who are saying to you, You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. Jeremiah 27, verses 4, 6, and also 8 to 10. Through Jeremiah, God has been telling them that he has put Nebuchadnezzar in place as the ruler of the world at this time, and that they must serve Babylon or die. But the false prophets tell Zedekiah, no, you must not serve the king of Babylon, God doesn't want us serving a foreign king. All this comes to a head with the message of the false prophet Hananiah, who prophesies in Jerusalem, thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares Yahweh, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Chapter 28, verses 2 to 4. It is not hard to imagine why this prophecy of Hananiah might have been popular and what damage it might have done. As chapter 28 continues, Jeremiah chronicles God's judgment on Hananiah for his false prophecy. But Hananiah's deceitful message wasn't just heard in Jerusalem. It spread to the exiles who were in Babylon. And it is also not hard to imagine how those exiles would have received the message. If you were those exiles being told that the message from God was, you'll all be home in two years, what would you do in response? You would say, well, there's no use settling down here in Babylon. We'll just sit here on the banks of the river and wait it out. We won't make a life for ourselves here because we won't be here long enough. We'll wait till we're back in Jerusalem before we get married, have children, or do any work. Or we're still. The response might have been, let's fight then. Let's take on King Nebuchadnezzar. 
because we know that our victory is assured in two years' time. In the face of Hananiah's deception and its likely effects, the exiles in Babylon needed to hear the truth. They needed to be told, don't believe this rubbish. You've actually got 70 years in Babylon. This is essentially what Jeremiah's letter to the exiles in chapter 29 is about. It is a refutation of the fabricated hope of an imminent return to Jerusalem. It's not a message to anyone and everyone about how to live in exile. It's a response to this particular false prophecy they had been peddled. With that in mind, we can now turn to chapter 29, verses 1 to 3, explain who is writing, the recipients, and how the letter reached them. Then the message gets started. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to Yahweh on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Chapter 29, verses 4 to 7. Now, without the context we have sketched, and if we just stopped there, you might think that the main point of this passage, the exile's primary calling, was to seek the good of the city of Babylon. Perhaps this could be a timeless teaching for the people of God, to misquote an old pop song, if you can't be in the city you love, love the city you're in. But it doesn't stop there. For thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares Yahweh. Chapter 29, verses 8-9. to These verses bring us back to the context of the letter. The argument is that they should do this as opposed to what they would do if they listened to the false prophets. They should not be seeking the downfall of the city, nor be trying to overthrow Nebuchadnezzar and break off his yoke, nor be withdrawing into a quietest Jewish ghetto on the banks of the Euphrates. Why? Because they have a much greater hope than the city of Babylon. For thus says Yahweh, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill it to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me, when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares Yahweh, and I will restore your fortunes, and gather you from all the nations, and all the places where I have driven you, declares Yahweh, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Chapter 29, verses 10 to 14. This is the main point of Jeremiah's letter. It is an explanation of the purpose of the exile. God is behind it. He has put them there in Babylon, not Nebuchadnezzar, and he has done it to drive them back to him, to seek him and pray to him. In fact, They are the hope for the future of God's people, because their brothers back in Jerusalem are about to be punished and made a curse. 
Chapter 29 holds out the glorious hope of the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. In 70 years' time, God will answer their prayers and restore them to their true home. God still has a long-term plan for their salvation. Verse 11 is the main point of this chapter, not verse 7, because their hope is not that God will bring prosperity to Babylon, but that he will return them to Jerusalem. When we understand that, we see that verses 3 to 7 are a corrective that flows from that main expectation. The exiles are being told to take hold of a future hope without letting that anticipation lead to a withdrawal from their current situation. Importantly, it is also a corrective based on self-interest for Israel, not based on concern for Babylon. The one reason that God explicitly gives to pray for the prosperity of the city is so that the Israelites will prosper. As I have worked through commentaries on Jeremiah and listened to sermons, I have been amazed at how hard people will work to explain away this reason God gives for the exiles to seek the welfare of the city. God does not say, seek the welfare of the city because I want you to love your enemies. God does not say, seek their welfare because I am just as much with you here as I am in Jerusalem. It's not even seek their welfare so that you might win them to the worship of the Lord. All those things might be true of God and his character, but they are generally an example of reading the New Testament back into the Old. What God says here in Jeremiah makes us uncomfortable. It just doesn't sound very like Jesus to say, seek the welfare of the city for your own good. Perhaps because we're too quick to apologize for God and to gloss over the seemingly selfish motivation that is given, we don't do the hard work of asking why God wants them to do this for their own benefit. I don't think he is meaning to encourage selfishness in them. The answer is in biblical theology. It's all tied to the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. Here is the key point in verses 3 to 7. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Verse 6. God wants the exiles to have grown in number by the time he takes them back to Jerusalem because they are the center of the fulfillment of his covenant promises, not those who did not go into exile. He wants them to have had children who grow up strong, physically and in faith, to take back with them when he ends this exile. The welfare or prosperity of Babylon is a means to an end of preserving God's people. We see this even more clearly when we read Jeremiah from beginning to end, rather than just jumping in at this chapter out of context. Back in chapter 16, God had said to Jeremiah in Jerusalem, don't get married and don't have children because they're all just going to die. My judgment is coming. But now God is saying, get married and have children again because there is a future for them and that future is in Jerusalem, not Babylon. The main message of Jeremiah 29 is, in fact, the old puppies and sunsets, verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. The message is that they are not forgotten and will be restored, that they will have to wait for 70 years for that restoration to occur. And so they should be using that time to get ready. The current very popular verse 7, then, is not a general exhortation to seek the welfare of whatever city we might find ourselves in. It is a specific corrective to a false and over-realized hope 
peddled by the false prophets like Hananiah. How do we apply all this to ourselves, to Christians living this side of Christ? As with all Old Testament texts, we should do it carefully, looking to how this passage finds its fulfillment in Christ and taking into account not only the similarities to our place in salvation history, but also the very real differences. Before I make three suggestions about how to apply this passage to us, let me first get out of the way a secondary, slightly polemical point about how not to apply this verse. Contrary to the way it is used by some today, this verse has no relevance at all to the question of the priority of reaching cities over other places. It does not say, seek the welfare of cities. It says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. The only reason they pray for this city is that it is where God has sent them into exile. In fact, the LXX doesn't use the word city at all. Its translation is land or country. Perhaps seek the welfare of the place I have deported you to. Now, there may well be arguments in other parts of Scripture as to why we should focus on mission to cities, though I haven't found them. There may be current sociological or strategic reasons for focusing on reaching cities, but using this verse as a support or proof text for why we should plant a church in Sydney rather than in Broken Hill, or why Christians should move to the city rather than the suburbs or rural locations, that's really one of those exegetical fallacies where we see a word and then import our agenda. Having said that, let me make some comments about how this chapter is relevant to us because we are also living in exile. We are sojourners and exiles in this world, 1 Peter 2.11, and our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. But in assessing the relevance of Jeremiah 29, we need to carefully see the differences as well as the similarities in our situation. One, our exile is not a judgment on us. God has not moved us from Jerusalem to Babylon as judgment for our apostasy. He has rescued us from within Babylon where we were born and where we now live with a foot in two cities. Why is that important? It means that for us, the biggest reminder we need is that this city is not our home. We haven't had an experience of Jerusalem to pine for. We naturally feel very much at home in Babylon. We don't need much encouragement to build houses, grow wealthy, get married, and have children. That's why Jesus gives no balance or corrective when he says to store up treasures in heaven. He knows where we naturally store our treasures, We don't need any encouragement to make ourselves more at home in Babylon. We have a far greater need to be reminded that our home is in the new Jerusalem. Two, we have not had a specific word on how long our exile will last. The call to the Jews in Jeremiah 29.7 was in light of the fact that God had revealed a very specific long-term time frame for the end of their exile. We don't have that certainty. In fact, at risk of sounding like Hananiah and the false prophets, The encouragement of the New Testament is to see the days as short. We should stand ready for Christ's return at any moment. We should not be found sleeping. Peter tells us that the only reason for delay is that so more people can come to know Jesus and therefore not perish, 2 Peter 3.9. Now again, why is this important? It is important because it means that we should actually be slow to apply the corrective of Jeremiah 29 to us. This corrective is aimed at people who are withdrawing from the world because they think Jesus is coming sooner than he promised, and those who are fighting with the world because they believe the eschaton is more eminent than it is. There may be some Christians who do need to hear a new covenant version of Jeremiah 29, 
verses 3 to 7, if they are so focused on the return of Christ that they have stepped back from the world into quietism, some millennial views lead Christians in this direction. There could be Christians like the Thessalonians who Paul wrote to who seemed to have stopped working and were scrounging off others because they thought the day of the Lord was so imminent, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If that is us, then we might need a corrective like Jeremiah 29.7, but that's not me and my church. It's no Western evangelical I've met, and the New Testament suggests it's not most Christians. We really need challenges like 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to consider remaining single for the sake of the gospel rather than marrying and having children. We need to be challenged not to find our home here rather than to build homes and settle. The New Testament, in my experience, suggests that most of us more naturally live as if Jesus will never return rather than like he could come before you finish reading this page. Three, if we apply this to ourselves, we must let the application be shaped by the New Testament. I've been astonished by people I've heard who make an argument from Jeremiah 29.7 like this. One, they note, that the word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom, which has a wide possible range of meanings. It covers physical, emotional, spiritual, and financial peace and prosperity. Two, then they assume that it has all those meanings here, and so expand it into various applications about work and money and involvement in civic affairs and the importance of helping buses run on time for the good of our city. Three, they then cast this vision for a comprehensive citywide shalom as a bolder call for civic engagement than Jesus or the New Testament ever makes on New Covenant believers for, and so this one verse becomes a charter for a program of Christian ministry that not only ignores its context in Jeremiah, as we've seen, but goes places where the New Testament simply does not go. We need to let the New Testament be our guide to what it means to seek the shalom of our world as we live as sojourners in it, rather than let an expansive out-of-context application of Jeremiah 29 drive our understanding of the New Testament. The primary message of Jeremiah 29 to us is to live in the light of our future hope, to live now in this world as citizens of the next world, neither ceasing to do good to all those around us now, Galatians 6.10, nor becoming so friendly with our world that we find ourselves enemies of God, James 4.4. We should let the New Testament give us the correctives we need. Don't withdraw from the world, but overcome evil with good. Don't hate your enemy, feed him instead. Don't hide away, but love your neighbor in the broadest sense of that word. Don't stand around waiting for Jesus to return while sponging off others, but work hard as if for the Lord. Perhaps the closest message to Jeremiah 29.7 in the New Testament is the call to not fight the secular government, but to submit and pray for those in authority so that we can quietly get on with living godly lives. Romans 13.1-7, 1 Timothy 2.1-2. Don't withhold your wealth from the world, pay your taxes, live such godly, good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse us of doing wrong, they will one day glorify God, 1 Peter 2.12. But more than anything, we should let our new covenant situation drive us to see that the most fundamental thing we can do for the welfare of our fallen world is not to contribute to the prosperity of our cities, it's to share the reason for our hope, to offer other sinners the salvation we have found in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and that is the entirety of Phil Colgan's piece from March 27th, 2017. Before I say anything about it, lest you expect I'm going to comment on this in this episode, let me just tell you right now, I'm not. I just read it for you. 
Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. So I'm going to read this like I have and let it percolate. And I'm going to give it some time, give it time, not just in my mind, but also in yours. Before I respond in the next episode to this piece, I will respond in the next episode to this piece. But now you have heard it in its entirety and we'll move to the next thing, which is what does ecclesia mean? To answer this question or to get a answer to this question, I'll turn your attention to another resource which appears to be coming out of Australia. I say that because on this website, abetterfuturenow.com, they have a whole page dedicated to religious affiliation in Australia. This is a page dedicated to Australian Bureau of Statistics 2021 census data. Oh, by the way, if you thought that it was alarming when I mentioned the other day, or if you just happened to know it and you didn't hear my podcast the other day, that's fine too. But if you thought it was alarming, if you knew that now nuns, the non-religious in America, in the United States, are reportedly 28%, you might find it interesting that in Australia, (laughs) uh, millennials, at a bare minimum, are responding no religion at 46.5%, Gen Z at 44%. The average age of a person affiliated with Christianity is 47 years old in Australia. Fun facts there. But they have a blog post with the question at the top of the page, what does ecclesia or ecclesia mean? And they file this under the words we've fudged, church. They write in the article, we look at the Greek word ecclesia, Latin ecclesia, and explore why this word was translated church and the implications of such a translation. And I'll just read this entire article for you without providing commentary as we go. Okay? Clarifying the objective is the first section. More than a few words get lost in translation, and sadly, ecclesia is one such word. In fact, not only have we lost its compelling meaning, we've settled for a format of gathering that continues to obscure the function of governance Jesus intended. Before we explore what the word originally meant and how this meaning was lost, it's important to clarify that this article is not aligned with the church bashing so in vogue today. It's becoming increasingly common to hear people say things like, it's all about the kingdom, the church stinks, the church is old and outdated, it's convoluted and unnecessary, we don't need it. That's like saying life is all about breathing, we don't need lungs, you know. Lungs can get old and they complicate things, those little alveoli and all. Of course, life is all about breathing, yet God has ordained our lungs as the organ that facilitates our breathing. The church is to the kingdom what lungs are to breathing. Yes, understanding the gospel of the kingdom as the framing big picture is critical, yet grasping that God has ordained the church as the organ or vessel through which he brings his kingdom is vital too. The objective is to discern where we fudged the original meaning of the word and to then rediscover the term as it was intended. The meaning of ecclesia, the Greek word ecclesia, ecclesia in Latin is a compound of two words, ek meaning out of and kaleo meaning to call. Together, they literally mean to call out and refer to the called out ones or the selected ones. In the first century, the word was not a religious word. In fact, it was a political 
word referring to those called out of the general populace to serve as a civil body or an executive arm. In ancient Greece, as early as 621 BC, the ecclesia was a group of selected individuals who would assemble regularly to deliberate and decide on matters of civil policy. It still retained this meaning in the first century. According to the Encyclopedia Britannica, assemblies of this sort existed in most Greek city-states continuing to function throughout the Hellenistic and Roman periods. For example, Luke refers to the city council in Ephesus, pressed into mediating the marketplace uproar as the Ecclesia Acts 1932, verse 39, also verse 41. Thus, the word spoke of an executive body whose function was to govern. According to Jesus, the next section, while the word ecclesia is used 114 times in the New Testament, Jesus used the word just twice. However, both times were significant. In the first case, he used it in the context of kingdom authority, Matthew 16, verses 1 to 20. In the second case, he used it in the context of mediating relational conflict and active governance, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 19. Let's explore the first case here. After Jesus warned the dirty dozen about the dangers of legalistic religion, verses 1 to 12, the disciples started discussing the street talk on Jesus. When Jesus cut through the pious cliches by asking the all-important question, who do you say that I am, Peter stepped up to be counted. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, verses 13 to 16. Jesus applauded Peter's courage. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, verse 17. In contrast to a lifeless, second-hand relationship through religion, Father God longs to reveal himself to us personally, intimately, affectionately. Jesus then declared, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. I will build my ecclesia. Firstly, if we don't hear Jesus saying something like, I will build my governmental executive, or I will build my governing arm, we haven't understood the word ecclesia, or the incredible truth revealed in this encounter. Peter, a mere man, son of Jonah, Received the Father's revelation of Jesus' lordship and glory, Jesus underlined the importance of this revelation by essentially saying, Peter, mere pebble, upon the rock of revelation that just happened to you, I will build my executive body. The comparison that Jesus made in this account must be grasped. Jesus compared the impotent man-made authority structures of the religious system of his day to the authority he intended to invest in the redeemed, 16, 1 to 12, 18, and 19. In this work of the Spirit, we're entrusted with true, life-giving authority, the keys of the kingdom, verse 19. In Christ's authority, ordinary people, like Peter, could release the resource of heaven to advance his rule on earth. Jesus used the phrases bind and loose, rabbinical words that meant prohibit and permit, respectively. It was a clear reference to the anemic rule-crazy approach of the Pharisees and Sadducees, verse 1, an authority that only resulted in bringing people into bondage and fear. The church, Jesus builds, walks in true authority, releasing the rule of God on this earth, an authority that sets people free and ushers in the kingdom's redeeming power. 
Thus, we might define the church as the king's executive body. Together, we're called to serve as his representatives on this earth and to rule on his behalf. Paul used the word ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5.20, another sociopolitical term. It goes without saying that representing and ruling on his behalf involves loving and serving people, not controlling and lording it over them. Jesus reminded us frequently in word and action that we're called to serve, not rule others. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Secondly, Jesus envisioned a prevailing ecclesia against whom even the gates of Hades, note, not the gates of hell, as many are in the habit of misquoting, would not prevail. The phrase gates of Hades referred principally to the power of death. The word Hades was used as a synonym for the Hebrew word Sheol, the grave, the great leveler, death. While the Greek word Hades also had other pagan connotations in ancient Greek thought, they weren't imported into mainstream Judaism as they were, unfortunately, in Christendom from about the 2nd century AD. Thus, in Matthew 16, Jesus could be simply stating that even death is now a known issue. In Paul's only usage of the word Hades, he declared just this point. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians 15.55. However, there does seem to be a secondary meaning in Matthew 16, especially given that Jesus then spoke about keys of the kingdom, a reference to authority, and then used the rabbinical terms binding and loosing, verse 19. In the ancient world, governmental and official affairs were conducted in the city gates, serving as command and control centers, and the Pharisees and Sadducees had assumed this moral gatekeeping role. Consequently, Jesus is probably alluding to the religious command and control systems of his day. He was thus referring metaphorically to man-made authority structures that oppress and exploit others. See verses 18 and 19. Most importantly, Jesus casts the vision of a victorious executive body that would not only trump these oppressive and exploitive authority structures, but model a new way of being, thinking, and living that would bring liberty to those under the thumb of religion and empire. The prophet Isaiah captured this incredible idea, declaring that the government rests on Jesus' shoulder and that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end, Isaiah 9 Verses 6 and 7. Jesus nested the term ecclesia, a political term, in the context of the kingdom of God. He anchored it on the foundation of God's father heart and directly contrasted it with religion. It's this term that speaks to our collective mandate as the redeemed, an executive body through whom he advances his kingdom. Ecclesia in the epistles. Likewise, when Paul used the term ecclesia, it had nothing to do with some denominational affiliation or a brick and mortar building and it was not the meeting that took place on some day of the week. Rather, the word ecclesia was used to refer to the king's executive body in three dimensions. The church universal, the word ecclesia was used in the universal sense to express God's original intent, manifested through Christ's body on earth. Here's an example, Ephesians 1, 22, 23, 3:10, 11. He put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Ecclesia which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, ecclesia, to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purposes which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church geographical. The word ecclesia was used in a geographical sense in referring to all the believers 
in a town, city, or region. Here are two examples. The first, to believers in the city of Corinth. The second, to the believers in the province of Galatia. To the church, Ecclesia, of God, which is at Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, 1 Corinthians 1-2. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches, Ecclesia, of Galatia, Galatians 1, verses 1 and 2. A church communal. Finally, the word Ecclesia was used in referring to a specific group of believers enjoying a shared communal life together, Romans 16, 5. Likewise, greet the church, Ecclesia, that is in their house. Colossians 4.15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nymphas, and the church, Ecclesia, that is in his house. Another synonym Paul uses for the church communal is the Greek word oikos, which means household, referring to a spiritual family. To Timothy he wrote, 1 Timothy 3.15, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, oikos, which is the church, Ecclesia, of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. In all three dimensions, ecclesia implies a function of governance, not a format of gathering, together as one body, as local believers in a region, city, or town, and as a kingdom community of faith, or to advance the kingdom of God in our collective sphere of influence, knowing our Christ-centered relationships, Christ-filled expressions of community, and Christ-motivated good works serve as a witness of the pillar and foundation of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, Colossians 2 verses 2 and 3. Yes, as believers will meet, often in various ways and formats, but our meetings don't define or restrict us. Our meetings are an overflow of who we are, the king's executive body, in love with God and one another and demonstrating his love to the world. Pointing out the words are lost in translation is not to condemn the translating process. Gratitude is the correct response for the hundreds of hours invested to not just translate one language into another, but to capture the intent of the language across 2,000 years. That said, no translation process is faultless and no translation is flawless. The goal of exegesis is to use all the tools available, including various translations, lexicons, dictionaries, and the like, to draw out the full meaning of the biblical text, accepting the limitations of the translation process. To the issue at hand, the use of the word church in our English translations, reflects one of the more obvious errors in translation. The word church stems from evolution of the Old English, Tsirce, Old English, Kirksa, and Scottish, Kirk, words derived from the Greek word Kyriakon, meaning pertaining to the Lord, from the Greek word Kyrios, meaning Lord. The word Kyriakon is only used on two occasions in the New Testament in referring to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11.20, and to the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. The word church, along with sirse, kirksa, and kirk, then referred to that which pertains or belongs to the Lord when applied to believers, it implied the Lord's people. While we certainly are the Lord's people, it's not difficult to see how the religious meeting held on what was deemed the Lord's Day, and which often included the Lord's Supper, became associated with this new word. However, when translators then used the contemporary word church in place of ecclesia, it obscured the function of governance Jesus intended. 
turning it into a format of gathering. While there's everything right with believers gathering in his name for worship and fellowship, conflating ecclesia with a meeting, or worse, a building, robs us of understanding our kingdom, identity, and role. The question becomes, do we delete the word church from our vocabulary or use the word seeking to re-engage with the original meaning of the ecclesia? It is my opinion that the wisest course of action is the latter. Let's give the translators the benefit of the doubt. The church in every way belongs to God. We are the Lord's people. However, let's work to revitalize the word with its kingdom intent while shedding the notion it refers merely to a religious meeting or worse the brick-and-mortar building in which believers meet. Now, as with the previous article that we considered, that we read, does Jeremiah 29 call us to seek the welfare of the city? I would encourage you, consider the answer to each of these two questions coming out of Australia, it would appear, in both cases, and consider it in relation to 2 Kings chapter 13. Consider it in relation to the death of Elisha and how Elisha here, prophet in Israel, is visited by the king and gets angry with the king for, as Matthew Henry sees it, going through the motions. He's told to do a thing and he does something of a minimal going through the motions, doing the thing that Elisha had told him to do And Elisha is angry. Why? Because that's not how to do what it is that God has given you to do. All right. Well, if that's how you're going to be, then you're not going to get a robust and complete effect. You will get some effect, but you're not going to get the full effect. And so be it. If that's what you want, if that's what you're committed to, then so be it. But if there is more to Jeremiah 29, let's say, than just naming it and claiming it however we please. If there is more to who we are as God's people than just we gather together on Sunday and we take communion together, for instance, we go through the motions like that, then it seems to me we should want to know that, not just for what we're not supposed to be about, but what are we supposed to be about? Are we looking for a minimalist answer here? And if we're not, then are we looking for an accurate and robust answer that is true to the whole counsel of God? In our next episode, I look forward to delving into a response to these two articles because they're very much front of mind for me. And I think they're terribly important questions that are being asked here that need to be reckoned with, not to say either the answer from Phil Colgan or this website, A Better Future Now, is going to give us everything that we possibly could want, not to say that they have all that needs to be said, not to say that my response is going to be all that we need to say about it or need to think about it. But if we go to the biblical text, if we go to God's word, we will not be disappointed. If we ask God for wisdom, we will not be disappointed. The first to state his case seems correct until the other comes and examines him. Whether I'm being cross-examined or these Australians are, Let's throw another shrimp on the barbie. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. 
You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.